I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. And welcome to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. And we're speaking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a hereditary peer who helped to found one of the world's most famous nightclubs and was a minister at the Department of Health during the pandemic. James Bethel is probably the only Tory member of the House of Lords who's organised a series of successful raves when he ran the Ministry of Sound in the South London warehouse in the 1990s. He was at the heart of government decision-making through the COVID-19 crisis and now looks set to fall through tougher rules to stop children accessing online pornography after Tory MPs backed his amendment to the online safety bill. Educated at Harrow, he looks like an easy member of the British establishment, but in fact his childhood was marred by tragedy. His mother took her own life when he was a small child. Grades are great, but grit and perseverance win every time, he says. James Bethel, thank you very much for joining us on thank you for Past having me. Imperfect. You've turned into a real campaigner since leaving government. Do you think that having some kind of adversity in childhood does drive you on, might make you want to change the world in that way? It does, I think, in two, in two ways. Firstly, it reminds you and, and you live with the fact that you know how bad life can be when things go wrong. It's almost as though that there is no... There's no nothing to catch you. The, the death of your mother is a lesson that the worst possible thing in the whole wide world can happen and you should lead your life on the basis that it might just happen. And that, that makes me very protective of, of our society and of, of my friends and, and of other people because I, I know that the, the bad things can go wrong. It also, I think, though, in a funny way, means that I have a high tolerance of risk myself because I have survived it. The worst thing that you could happen, you could think of happening when you're nine years old is that your mother dies. And then you've lived through it and you're still on your feet and everything is continuing. And that means that um, although you know the worst thing that can happen, you also know that you can survive it. And so if you're going to campaign for things, you've got to accept that you're going to probably lose. Campaigning is a pretty tough, arduous thing to be done. And you have to stick your neck out and uh, take a lot of criticism. And knowing that... What's the worst that could happen? Um, uh, you're going to survive anyway. Uh, means that you have a, re- a resilience that other people maybe don't have. And your amendment to the online safety bill would actually ensure that children had greater protection online from pornography. Why did you choose that as one of your campaigns? I think I think two reasons. One is, I just think we've made the most awful mistake ever by by letting children freely access horrible, violent, graphic pornography for the last 30 years. I mean, it's been going on for a really long time. And I do think uh, it's had a, had a 
very bad effect on a whole generation of kids. My, my kids, I've got four kids, they're 8, 11, 13 and, and, and 16. I just really worry about the life they're in. And I also worry about the, the um, uh, kids who sometimes appear in these videos. Um, the problem is, what happens is, people who become addicted to porn want more and more graphic and violent porn. The, the dopamine hit gets more and more difficult to chase. And before long, they want disgusting, violent and abusive um, pornography. And that's led to a huge uptick in the kind of stuff that either children have recorded themselves and finds its way on the internet or grown-ups are inducing out of them. And it's a it's a crime that we're going to look back on with huge regret, I think. Mm. And it looks like your amendment might actually become law, which is incredibly unusual for a peer to manage to bring forward a change like that. Do well, you think, how optimistic are you about it? I don't know. I think a lot of it is with um, the women in the House of Commons. There's a lot of women on the backbenches of Labour and Conservatives who, who are really angry about this and who don't think that the government's done enough, who think big tech have let us down. Listen, there, there are amazing things that have come out of technology. Uh, I'm a, and I'm a big believer in business, generally speaking, being a force for good. But on this one instance, we've had a, a huge blind spot for years. And, and women backbench MPs are really cheesed off about it. And they want something done. And we want to take you back to your own childhood. Can you tell us your first memories of where you grew up? Well, we, we grew up in a huge house, a Georgian house in Ascot, um, that my father had bought when he inherited his title and, and some money. And it was just the most beautiful place I've been back uh, since. Um, and it uh, had idyllic lawns uh, and lovely marbled halls. Um, but the, the main memory I have of it was in the car driving away from it and turning to my father and saying, where are we going? And he's saying, we're leaving Cranbourne Court now. And I said, when are we going back? He said, we're, we're never going back. And he then said, and I then said, and is mummy coming with us? He said, no, mummy's going somewhere else. And uh, he bought me a nice cream on the, on the journey into London. So how old were you? When that I was four years old. So that was when they split up? And that was when they divorced, yeah. And how old was your younger brother? So my brother was two and he has no memories of any of that. Right. Um, yeah. So where did you then go to live? We went to a, to a fantastic house in uh, near Paddington called Sussex Square. And my father made a really loving home for us. So he brought us up um, uh, most of the time. And he, he was actually very modern in a funny way. Uh, although he was a sort of stiff um, aristocrat, he was full of hugs. And he had a, a, he had a ability to talk to children... Uh, on the level, as if they were adults. And that, I think, I found very engaging. And I, I know my friends always told me about how much they enjoyed coming to our house because you weren't treated like a child or a kid. You were treated like an adult. And maybe he didn't know any different. Maybe that was just how he, how he managed his life. But it was actually a really warm and, and loving place. But very strange in some ways to go with your father, not your mother. That wasn't traditional at that point. Right, my mother was a severe alcoholic. She uh, had had a very tough time when I was born at St Mary's um, and had developed some postnatal depression, some blues. And then my brother was born uh, six weeks uh, premature. And an awful thing happened that would never, ever happen today. Uh, they kept him in an in a, uh, uh, incubator. My father used to call it the percolator. 
And uh, my mother was taken to the house in Cranbourne Court to recover. And she didn't see my brother for six weeks. And it broke her heart. And Mm. she couldn't drive. She was from Fife in Scotland, where her friends and her her family were. And she was isolated in this splendid Georgian house Mm. with her hormones raging, with her profound sense of uh, separation. And I I don't know, but I think that's what really pushed her over the edge. Yeah. And... um, and quite soon afterwards, she started drinking heavily and became completely irresponsible and unable to to bring us up. Did anyone ever talk even then about postnatal depression? No. In, in fact, it's only it's only me it's only me putting two and two together that has sort mm. of thought about um, what might have happened. I knew about my fa- my brother being um, uh, premature, but no, they just uh, thought that she had gone mad. And that she had, uh, like her father, developed an insatiable thirst for alcohol and drugs. Um, but I think that there was much more to it than that, and the story is actually more heartbreaking. Yeah. And how often did you see her? Did you see her at all? Yes, we saw her every Sunday, uh, and I can't tell you how painful it mainly was. Uh, periodically, she was on great form. Periodically, she had a huge warmth and charisma to her, and she would take us into her arms and and make us feel great. But quite often, like half of time, she was drunk or depressed or all over the place. And it it was really traumatic. Mm-hmm. And I remember standing at the bus stop of the 88 bus on Bayswater Road every Sunday morning with my brother and our nanny and asking the nanny, do you think mummy will be all right today? And the oh. nanny saying, well, I, let's hope so. And sometimes we'd press the buzzer and there'd be no reply at all and we would just go home and there was a sort of sense of relief. Sometimes we'd go up and she would be, you know, I remember occasions when she was lying on the floor with vomit on the floor and and bedclothes all over the place and the nanny would have to sort her out and dress her and and put her to bed and then we'd home. And then sometimes she'd have a wonderful meal on the table and it would all be fantastic. We've got a um, photo of her here, and she she looks incredibly modern. She's smiling, looking straight at the camera. She looks very like you. Yeah. Well, she had she'd been a, a journalist uh, after university. She'd gone to uh, her, her father had been an archaeologist, quite an, an eminent Scottish archaeologist who'd travelled um, the Yemen and found uh, scrolls in Aramaic. He he spoke and, and translated uh, biblical Aramaic, and he was part of that generation who were decoding. Uh, the Old Testament in the 1950s. So he was a sort of uh, Indiana Jonesy type mm. Scot in a funny sort of way and a minister in, uh, in the Church of Scotland. Um, and she had had this um, remarkable sort of Highlands upbringing and had joined the Daily Express and um, had been a, a fabulously successful young professional woman. How did she meet your father? They, My father had, had been a, a very brilliant linguist and when he did his... Uh, national service. He was sent to a um, airfield called Crail in Fife, where they learnt Russian with former Cossacks who had stayed, who had been allowed to stay after the war. And we had a massive language deficit uh, with the Russians. Uh, and they put fifty nerds in a Nissan hut with some Cossacks to to learn uh, Russian. And he had met her at a party with at St Leonard's School. Uh, where she had been studying as a schoolgirl and fallen in love with her when she was 17. 
and they had stayed in touch and uh, had eventually married. So it was a it was a love story uh, in a way. Yeah. And what was your relationship with her like? Did you feel very protective with her? Or did you feel quite angry and distant? I, I. It was really awkward because I wanted to be close to her, mm. and I wanted I wanted just for things to be normal, but they were just so far off that, mm. and so. Um, it was just a source of... No, I didn't feel angry. Uh, I just felt a huge gap and sense of uh, disappointment. Mm. Um, did she ever come to school or no. join any of the things that you did? No, she quite early on, she got um, banned from seeing us on her own. Um, we had gone out for a trip, and when she'd parked the car, she'd bang the car into the front and the back mm. because she was drunk. Oh, and okay. I had said to my father... Uh, oh, isn't it funny how you park the car, Daddy? Because Mummy has another way of doing it. <laughs> she just pushes the other cars out of the way. <laughs> and my father, not unreasonably, uh, got a court order uh, so that she couldn't pick us up or, or take us on her own and we were always accompanied by a nanny. And, did and that, did, that did break her heart. That, yeah. it, I think my father had a point. Um, but uh, it was awful for her. So she couldn't really take us on holiday. We did go on a few excursions to the Highlands to stay with friends, and they were wonderful, wonderful trips, but uh, she was extremely unreliable. And your father was never there when you went to see her? He he couldn't even mention her name. He couldn't. He never asked us about our trips. He never uh, inquired about them. He never was never uh, inquisitive about what went on. He, I think his heart had been really badly broken. Uh, I took him, we went to Scotland and I dragged him to her grave against his um, better judgment and we and we paid tribute and laid some flowers and, and I tried to find a moment of solace and reconciliation and I said to him, Dad, why, why are you unable to talk about her, our mother? She must have meant so much to you. And he said, she let me down so badly I can hardly think about her at all. And uh, I think that was just the, the bottom line for him. Did you find yourself trying to hide the alcohol bottles or uh, stop her drinking? In no, it was all a bit... We were so young, it was all a bit mysterious to me. Mm. And she, like most drunk, she lied about it a lot. Uh, I remember going to see her in hospital where after one of her bigger episodes. Um, and uh, we, we went... I think she must have been in hospital for nearly a month. Um, and uh, we went to see her every week, and she said that she was there for for an unexplained puffiness of the face. <laughs> and what had actually happened? Well, she'd had a big breakdown, and her therapy had included electric shock therapy, um, which I c and uh, she was quite traumatized by the whole thing. Oh when goodness. did you discover that? Was it later on? No, she told us she at did the time. Her, yeah. And what did you feel? Because you were, you must have been seven or eight at that stage. Uh, just well, you sort of think it's normal you know you just and and she tried her hardest to sort of normalize it and not make it a big deal but the chaos in her life was was absolutely extraordinary where um, was she living was she living in a flat or? she lived she lived in a uh small flat in holland park and had no money at all she had she sold all of her jewels um and um was constantly broke she couldn't hold down a job and in those days of course Men didn't provide for their divorced, drunk wives. Right. Um, and my father was heartbroken and, and, and therefore she had a very tough life, really. And um, what effect do you think the electric shock therapy had on her? I think 
all the therapies in aggregate were awful. She had pills to try to stop her from drinking that made her throw up if she mm. drank, and they were a disaster. She had all kinds of therapies that made no difference at all. There, there seemed to be no, no proper um, analysis of what her mm. problem might be. Um, and in fact, she ended up having a long affair with her GP, uh, who I met, who seemed nice enough. And, um, but totally inappropriate for him. And then he didn't marry her and didn't leave mm. his wife, surprise, surprise. So yes, an, an utterly abusive. Mm. And I, you know, I, I think that in that, this instance, the NHS did contribute mm. to her death. Mm. And she died of being a woman. She died of being mm. not properly uh, diagnosed, treated inappropriately and without any consideration mm -hmm. and literally abused mm -hmm. by the professionals who mm -hmm. should have been caring for her instead of sleeping with her. And what happened to her family and her parents? Were they there or were they up in Scotland unable to help? I'd never really understood. There must have been some heartbreak in her own family that meant that they mm. were very distant. One brother had moved to New Zealand. Another sister had moved to Australia. Um... My grandfather moved to the f top of Scotland and lived in a tiny house in the middle of nowhere. I think he himself must have been an extremely difficult character mm -hmm. and they were certainly not there for her. And in the 1970s, being a, being a, a Scot in West London, there was no infrastructure mm -hmm. for her and people just weren't... They were, I don't think people were tolerant of mums who had failed. Uh, my, my own family have spoken to me about it and they all feel that they didn't stand by her, that they didn't think that it was right to spend time mm. sort of looking after her and, and with a degree of regret, I think. Mm. And you were nine when she tragically took her own life. What happened? Well, I, I don't know if she did exactly die. Uh, uh, she had some very nice neighbours underneath and one day water started coming through their, into their house. So they knocked on the door. They were always picking her up mm. out of one problem or another. And eventually they... Um, broke the door down, and she was in her bath, um, having drowned in the bath, oh. drunk and on drugs. So and there she was, could have been an accident. Well, there, there was a, quite a big uh, post-mortem and, and a coroner's investigation, and it was um, agreed it was by misadventure. I think it's quite a common way that people who are leading disastrous lives pass away. You drink too much, you take some drugs, you mm. decide to have a hot bath, you fall asleep mm. in your bath... And you drown. Mm. It's it's a classic drunk death, and I don't know whether to describe that as suicide or or, yeah. or an accident. There's, I hate to say it, but it, you know there was a sense that I knew it was going to happen. Even oh. when my father told me that she had died, I was not surprised. I sort of, you know, everyone could feel it was coming. And uh, you know, one of my regrets, one of the things I, I've had to deal with, is that I did feel a sense of relief. I've, I sensed a, a pained, wounded animal that was thrashing around, um, trying to make sense of a world and just not coping mm. and uh, in terrible, terrible pain. How did your father tell you? Um, he, he really struggled with it. I mean, he, he, didn't, he didn't do it very well. And I know from my nanny, uh, having talked to her about it, he, did, he, he left it for a couple of days. He didn't, he, it was the worst thing in, in his entire life. Mm. Um, he took advice from a friend who was a psychologist. I mean, he 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 sat us down on the sofa and 
and sort of told us pretty straight. Uh, my brother sort of still laughs about it. The worst thing about it was we didn't go to the funeral. And I think that that was perhaps to spare us. Uh, it was a very long way away in Scotland. Um, and I think maybe the conventional wisdom of those days was to try and spare the kid. But for me, it just meant I never quite knew what had happened. Yeah. I didn't know where she was. I had no sort of sense of it. Mm. Um, and you inevitably have dreams that your mother's going to walk back into your life one day. It definitely compounded that mm. sort of wishful thinking. And, and when I was at Edinburgh University, about 19 years old, I sort of decided I was going to find her. And I rang two or three cemeteries in Fife and tracked her down and found her grave. And it, it didn't have her markings on it. And so I arranged to what have her... What did it say? Her mar- was there it no just, tombstone or anything? There was, a, there was the tombstone of her parents. And... Uh, because they were ashamed or something of No her. one had got around to it. Right. This was a family that was just not functioning. Mm. Oh, that's so And my sad. father wasn't functioning mm. and just the whole... It was just a complete collapse of functionality. And were there mm. any childhood friends or anyone that you could talk yes. to about her? I, I would run into people every now and again. Uh, I would run into someone who knew her and would speak into of such glowing terms. And she was clearly, you know, one of those characters who was very charismatic, walked into a room with huge warmth and was hilarious and told jokes and was great to have around. Um, and I always loved those moments. And mm. uh, um, But, you know, and, but the conversation would move quickly on to how, what a tragedy her life had become and, and how sad it was that she had died. Did she leave any note or letters for you or your brother? No, not in her, not in her suicide. What I do have is... Um, two things. One uplifting, one very sad. Um, she wrote uh, beautiful love letters to my father and back again. And they had a slightly tumultuous relationship. They dropped each other and there was that up and down. And, and so the negotiation of them getting married is in, the, in letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it is very beautiful and very human. Mm-hmm. And you know, given that this, this event was so big in my mind, the letters bring it back down to sort of the practicalities mm-hmm. of our, all of our love lives. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, I do have notes that she sent me uh, and she used to write me amusing poems. And she had a very nice... T- you know, she was a clever, clever, engaged, bright... Uh, woman, she she would have made a fantastic mum, and had they caught this postnatal depression earlier, uh, and had they put her back on her feet, I, I you know I think she would have been amazing as a mother. And were you given any therapy at all as a child? Um, so my father had a wonderfully beautiful, sexy girlfriend called Maggie Nowak, whose mother was called Ilsa Nowak, who was Anna Freud's right-hand friend from Vienna. And so I was sent to Ilsa Nowak, Britain's leading Viennese Freudian (laughs) (laughs) child psychologist. And she was lovely. And she was actually, she didn't psychoanalyze me or do my dreams or anything like that. She actually turned out to be a very good friend. And and I'm godfather to her granddaughter. uh, And her granddaughter is now my eldest son's godmother. So we, so the shrink became a mate. Okay. Uh, and I don't know if that helped at all. What, what I did do is in my late 20s, I realised I had a sort of big problem on the horizon. 
and I did a huge amount of group cognitive therapy twice a week for two hours for three years. So that is that was a real industrial mm. quantity of, of therapy. But actually what it led me to was that um, I had a big problem with women mm. and that the and the, the fact that my mother had abandoned me uh, meant that I just wasn't trusting women. And in fact, they annoyed me enormously. And I hadn't really noticed it. Mm. And, it uh, uh, and that experience, I hope, um, straightened me out of it. Mm. So you talked about how it felt as if she'd abandoned you. Did it feel like a kind of rejection by her? Or was, did that come much earlier with the drinking? Less rejection, more careless abandonment. Yeah. More like being left, you know, in a railway station to fend for yourself. Mm. And in the 70s, there weren't so many people with divorced parents. You know, it was quite uncommon. I was probably the only person in my class. And um, my father was lovely, but he worked abroad. And there were long holidays and weekends where there was no one to look after me or, or, you know, I really, really... And at those times, I was like, how come other kids have got, like, a mum to sort stuff out and Mm -hmm. make things happen? I've got to do it myself. This is not fair. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I did... I I was reasonably phlegmatic about it, but there were moments when I did think to myself, this is really not not fair. Mm -hmm. And what was it like going to boarding school? Was that a relief or was that actually even harder because you were one separation further from your family no not no boarding school was fine um it was a bit boring being stuck in london and therefore going to boarding school filled the day a bit um and actually um although my father was very lovely i didn't see a huge amount of him it's just when i did see him he was great fun and very loving listen the key thing about my father was i knew he loved me and i knew he was there for me and a lot of people didn't have that stability in their life. And my brother and I used to say to ourselves when we were coming back from some friend's house where the parents had had a huge row or where our friend was, like, miserable at home, well, at least we've got dad. Mm-hmm. At least he's, like, there for us. It's actually not so bad. And uh, and I do think that. He, he, was, he was really good about that. Did you also feel very protective of your brother? Feel you had to look after him as the older one? Yes, I did. And... Uh, <clears throat> I, yes, I felt enormously protective of him. Mm-hmm. And um, he, did he struggle more? Do you think? No, I don't know. Um, he never ever talks about it. Right. He doesn't quite have the same memory, so he can hardly remember my mother. And that's partly because he's a couple of years younger, partly because I think he's just um, dealt with it differently. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't. He 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 doesn't want to think about it. He is a lot like my mother. He's he's. He looks like her a bit, and he's funny, and he's, um, you know, big character. And do you both worry about drink at all or not? Yeah, I used to drink. I used to worry about drink a lot and and drugs and the whole lot. And this idea of, a, of an addicted personality. Um, I've actually slightly changed my mind on it. I think what I think it isn't drink an addictive personality. I think people who have had severe trauma early in their life develop addictive personalities from the trauma. Mm. And that might be addictions for gambling or for, for eating or, or for drink. I think if you've had some kind of trauma early in your life, you have to really watch it. Um, and I did drink and do too many drugs in my 20s. Um, and I snapped out of it and I did two years of absolute uh, no drinking, no, no nothing. And that, that fire break, I think, made a big difference. I did it soon after my father died. And um, um, I'm glad I did it. 
So do you think your mother's death changed you or was it actually your father's death changed you even more? No, it's my, mo- my mother's death defined me. Yeah. It's defined my entire personality. Um, it, um, it has made me more resilient um, and, and better able to cope with risks. And it um, has given me a, a, a humanity that you, I might not have had because I, I understand that life doesn't always go your way. Mm. And whenever someone is in front of me, I'm thinking, um, there's a bit of me that's thinking, this, this person has probably had real hardship in their life and you should bear that in mind mm. when, you're, when you're thinking about them. And then your father remarried, didn't he? Was that very difficult for you too? Yes, it, it, it was, frankly. Um, uh, he not only married, though, he moved on in his life. What was nice is that he really did love his bride. He was really passionate about her. And he, he, he had had loads of girlfriends. He, he said that he never got remarried because he wanted to protect his boys. I think he quite liked having loads of girlfriends. <laughs> so I was really happy when he fell headlong in heels and fell in love. But he did also hugely move on and there wasn't any room for my brother and I in his new life. And that was really tough because we had been a real gang and the three of us had enjoyed hanging out together and holidaying and dinners hugely. And to be to have that end was tough mm. and I had to go and find my own way in life. And Stuart Rose, the businessman, said to us once that losing his mother to suicide was a sort of vaccine for future pain. He thought that that kind of strength, it was sort of an inoculation, if you like. Do you, do you, does that resonate with you? Do you think that's true? It kind of protects you in a way. I think, I think it's both. I think that um, when bad things happen, I am pretty phlegmatic about it because I know that I've lived and survived a lot worse but sometimes I can't process. I do sometimes have to really step back and think to myself, gosh, you're not acknowledging or, or you're, you're in some kind of emotional lockdown. Mm. And, and, I, and I have to be quite careful that I'm, that I'm not kind of ignoring the facts in front of my face and that I'm not somehow throwing up a protective shield. And I think that that does come from the protective shield I must have thrown up when I was a child. Mm. So you got married? Yes. And did you then feel more secure in yourself anyway? Or? Yes. Get, getting, getting married for me was a huge breakthrough. And I sought out uh, literally the most reliable person in the world. <laughs> so the opposite, really. <laughs> my, my wife is like the strongest, most formidable, consistent, tough person you could ever ever meet mm. and I don't think that's an accident mm. and it's funny I, 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 I did walk into this drinks party and see her across the room and I and I literally thought she's the one for me that's the one mm. and I have to admit I wasn't even looking she, she'd like have her <laughs> back to me <laughs> and there was I, I honestly think I like sensed across the room her 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 reliability and the, and the fact that she was such a strong thoughtful person and that nothing would shake her and that she would just be there for me for the rest of my life 
I honestly think I could tell that even in a busy drinks party on a Saturday evening. Amazing. Did she think the same too, do you think? No, she thought the absolute <laughs> opposite. <laughs> she spent ages trying to shake me off. She refused to date me for yonks. She refused to um, get engaged to me. Uh, and it took her about five years after being married that she would actually acknowledge that we had, we were actually a couple. <laughs> <laughs> but that just makes me love her more. <laughs> and does it make you very, very determined to be there and reliable for your children as well, the, the fact that you had such a t- tricky childhood? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that... Um, yeah, I'm hugely passionate about family. I like I like the... Decorative bits, the Friday evening dinners, and the and go, t- being on the touchline, and, and the soft and emotional bit. I like giving the hugs late at night, and I just re- I want to know. I want my children to know one hundred percent that whatever happens, we'll be there for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I might not be perfect, but um, you know. Yeah, solid. I want to be solid. Mm. And were you worried when your first child was born, either that you would feel depressed or worried or how you'd you'd react because of your mother, whether it would bring up issues again? I wasn't worried for my own... I was worried that I wouldn't be a very good father because I wasn't emotionally mature enough or that somehow I was damaged goods. I was worried that... I was worried that I'd literally been broken as a child, although in some ways stronger, in some ways more uh, emotionally engaged, in some ways having insight into other people's hurt and and uh, fragility, that I myself just might, you know, like if you break your leg, you can't ski anymore, right? I might just not have the emotional components in place to do the job properly. Um, and sometimes I am. I am sometimes my, my kids catch me out and they say, I'm sorry, your read of that situation is completely wrong. You've totally miscalled it. You're 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 just not a very good dad. You need to try quite a lot harder. <laughs> That's great. Um and I do. And but you know, luckily they're they they, they make their feelings plain to me, so I, I, I learn all the time. Does it make you very want to be very in control of everything? No. It makes me treasure my friendships. And one of the things that I was really blessed by is having two or three really strong friendships. And that that's what filled the gap between not having a mother and having a father who was very sweet but not around. Mm. Uh, both my brother and I have got you know, long-standing you know, friends who I've had for 50 years. Um, and all my all, and in my professional life, I have sought out partnerships with with people. Um, and that's partly because that's my, I learned it's a good way to operate, but it's also protective. It's, I found it's good to know that there's someone else who's got your back and will be there for you if you need them. You're listening to Past Imperfect in association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, James Bethel. We'll be back after this. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Past Imperfect, an association with Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest, the Conservative peer and campaigner, James Bethel. And when you went to the Ministry of Sound, which, I mean, was quite a leap from Harrow and then university, what was that like? And did you, did you feel comfortable? Were you nervous about being out of control then? Um, I wasn't so worried about the uh, being out of control on drugs and drink. Um I just found it hugely liberating. You know, I found London so stuffy and uptight and my friends who had gone to work is to be stockbrokers and, and you know, I just couldn't have done that. I, I, it was Institutional life was just too claustrophobic for me at that stage. And going to a warehouse in South London and trying to invent a global music brand was just such fun. And we we did things our own way, and we invented uh, loads of new, new new stuff. It was a it was a startup before there were real startups. Mm. And it was with your cousin, is that right? And it was with my cousin Jamie Palumbo, mm. who had himself had a very turbulent childhood, and we used to tease each other about who had had the worst childhood. I think mm. he won by quite a long margin. Uh, but his mother had died, uh, Denia, who I who I loved very much indeed, and I was very fond of. Uh, and he'd had a very turbulent time with his father, and so we we were both we were both in, there was a degree of self help about the whole thing. We were both <laughs> helping each other out and therapizing each other. Um, but also but, creating these quite wild nights, right? And 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 the nights were wild, but it was more that the business was like it was iconoclastic. We would we were creating new business models. We were taking to sponsors and business partners a completely different read on youth marketing mm. and on the, and on the music industry. In a way that is quite normal now, you know, you, you go into a meeting with a startup and they're immediately telling you that they're going to reinvent the world. Mm. But in 1991, it wasn't like yeah. that. Britain was staid and old-fashioned, and and people didn't believe that anything would ever change. And you change. were a son as well, so it must yeah, be... and we were like these stuffy public school boys, <laughs> you know, bizarrely running the coolest nightclub mm. and and going to see people in youth marketing and the music industry. So the, yeah, the whole thing was hugely good fun, and so just we... and it and it was a re- it was running off to the circus. It was it was letting off steam and I, i'm really glad i had the opportunity because otherwise i could you know it actually is the thing that probably saved me mm. so were you sort of almost losing yourself in hedonism or was it kind of trying to recreate oh, no, it wasn't your... hedonism. no no or... no i worked so, so were hard you... okay so oh, you, no, no. were you the stuffy accountant or were no, you... i wasn't the stuffy accountant and i did stay out quite late a few times <laughs> and uh um but i also worked I mean, listen, I learned how to work really hard. Mm. I, I had I had worked at Sunday Times. I thought I knew what working hard was. But honestly, working at the Ministry of Sound, it was get there early, do a 16-hour day, have a quick kip, then go clubbing until four, 
then make sure you're back in the office again at 8.30 the next day. I had a meeting at uh, 10 to 8 every morning with my cousin for seven or eight years. And why did you stop in the end? Was that because you met someone and got married and you needed a more sort of stable no, life? No, it was, I did enjoy it. It just, it just ran its course. Dance music ran its course. Um, the business ran its course. Um, I, we, a whole bunch of us needed to move on. And Do you ever go clubbing now? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Melissa's a great, a great dancer, so I'm very fortunate in that respect. I still haven't learned to dance very well. <laughs> <laughs> Dad dance. Yeah. So do you think politicians are too neurotic about admitting they've taken drugs? Listen, the, you know, people are, are so tough on you when you admit frailty when you're a politician. I, I, I have a, listen, it's easy for me because I'm a, I'm a hereditary backbench peer, so I have very little jeopardy at the moment. Um, but I've seen people being really badly damaged by trying to level with people. So, no, I don't think that they are wrong to be worried about it. I think they are wrong to succumb to their worries. I think we do need to level it. Listen, we, we, people have turbulent relationships. They, have, they, take, they make mistakes when they're younger. Um, we're going to have to be more honest about this stuff. Mm. Otherwise, our politics is going to continue to be dysfunctional. We can't pretend to be these pin-ups that our politicians are trying to be. Mm. Why did you decide to become a minister? Um, I, had, I had always wanted to see government from the inside and to serve in that way. Uh, my great-grandfather, the First Lord Bethel, is my political hero. He had been the son of a gardener who was a friend of Lloyd George. He'd made billions of pounds doing property in the east of London. Uh, he'd built schools and hospitals and cemeteries. He was a Christian philanthropist and president of the um, anti-drinking society. And he had been a minister during the war um, looking after um, uh, vehicles and, and the supply chains during the war. And he was just a totally cool guy who combined a business career with serving the community. And that's what I, that's just my, that's what I've always wanted to do, make a bit of money and then serve the community. And when the pandemic came along and Chris Whitty was in the office um, and spelt out the train that was coming down the railway tracks, I felt a really strong sense of duty that I should try to do whatever I could to, um, to serve and to try and help out. Was it terrifying? Yeah, totally. It was it was particularly those first early weeks when we we could see what was going to happen mm. and no one else was talking about it or was uncertain or unpersuaded and um yeah the number of the number of lives and the uncertainty just the and the extraordinary changes that every day the evidence changed it gave you a a, a feeling in the pit of your stomach you know very often that this could be really really bad yeah and you'd never been you know, in politics or a minister before, and you're suddenly thrust into probably one of the most complicated jobs you could have. What was that like? Well, one thing about being minister in the Department for Health is that you, you do have these incredible officials, almost all of whom have got a doctorate, because obviously they're doctors, right? They're in the Department for Health. And so they are themselves incredibly impressive. And what they're looking to you for <clears throat> is the political readout. Now, I can do politics all day and all night. And so, so you do have your own superpower. And then as you begin to learn the rhythm of how the department works and what the policy is, you can then start having stronger, 
stronger views on what should or shouldn't work. But in the pandemic, I had, at least in the first few months, one very simple role, which was just to get the machine moving. There was a really, you know, really strong sense of stasis. Um, It was arthritic and, and it was difficult to crank things up. And the role of a junior minister then is to walk around saying, buy everything, do more, do that, but 100 times bigger, and just to be encouraging and to endorse people's views. Well, that that comes naturally. That is what I do well in the <laughs> world. And, um, you know, I, 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 from that point of view, I, I kind of was in, in, in my comfort zone. And you were lobbied, reportedly, by Baroness Moan um, over PPE. What did she say? Was she very persuasive? Persistent? She... She was um, extremely persistent. In fact, I'd say that she was in a category of her own. And I was uh, shocked by her behaviour. And I told her to stand down absolutely emphatically. Um, I'm really disappointed by her behaviour. Because, you know, a lot of people step forward to try to help. And the response to the government's call for assistance was really, really impressive. And there were people who made money along the way but generally speaking their behaviors were proportionate and do you think in retrospect that the lockdowns went too far either for the economy or particularly for schools that actually it was disproportionate no uh, on the whole i don't the schools thing is particularly heartbreaking and um, obviously, we're going to live with the consequences. You know, when, when Chris Whitty came into our office in the beginning, he gave us a little bit of a sort of tutorial in what, what happens in a pandemic. He said, I remember he said, the, the second wave will be bigger than the first wave. Well, at the time, that seemed like absolutely, <laughs> I'm like, what? How can that possibly be true? And he said, managing your borders or containing the disease will be very difficult, which it, which it, which it proved to be. He also said that when we look back at our response there will be a lot of blame and people won't want to think about the pandemic anymore. Mm. And the people who are in leadership positions will get a lot of opprobrium. But um, with the schools, um, we, we, we absolutely talked about it and we analysed the hell out of it and we made all the decisions on schools really, really regretfully. There was one chart, though, that kind of was difficult to argue with. One, the chart showed how the infection would get in at, amongst children who would spread it amongst themselves hugely. And then it would move up over the weeks, over the days, absolutely relentlessly through the ages. And and if if infection was red and non-infection was blue, you would see the red, as you saw the chart every day, grow up and then eventually be in the 70s and 80s year olds. Mm. And there was nothing you could do to stop it. And of course, the kids had a very low um, threat of death or even severe disease, but... Once they got it, it would get to and the, the older people. And, and one way of slowing that down was to, to close the schools. But and it the was other just, way was to look after the care homes. I mean, that was the other problem, wasn't it, e- that you hadn't? No, I don't. Uh, there was no way of keeping it. No, nowhere, anywhere in the world did anyone mm. keep the infection out of the care homes. The, 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 it definitely shone a spotlight on how badly our care home arrangements are. And we did everything that we could to try to improve them and to reduce the itinerant nurses. You see, a lot of the infection came from, unfortunately, from from uh, the workforce who moved around. But no one managed to keep the infection out of the care homes themselves. And how damaging do you think the hypocrisy of politicians has been? So whether that's Boris Johnson and the parties or Matt Hancock and 
his girlfriend. I think that everything that I have understood about what the public think of the, of the leadership response to the pandemic is that they think we did a not bad job and we did our best. Certainly the measures themselves were hugely popular and we tracked it really, really carefully. We didn't want to break the elastic band of, of our licence. And um, there, there, were, uh, there were mistakes. But I think that the, the public, in the broadest sense of the word, basically think we did as good a job as we could have done under the circumstances. But they minded about the parties then or not? I don't know. But you never had any parties, or did you? I didn't. So you must have felt it was the wrong thing to do. I did. I, I was heartbroken about it, to be honest, because so many people had been so disciplined. And uh, we'd had um, the Cabinet Secretary write to us, telling us that the country was looking at our own personal behaviours. We had the, our own permanent sec talking to us about how we needed to behave. I had my own private office, and the head of my private office was on my case night and day. Uh, making sure that there were the right number of people in the room, that I was at home when I should have been at home, that I wasn't sort of trying to press mm. the boundaries. Mm. And everyone knew about these parties. And um, it was, it was, you know, the subject of a huge amount of tittle-tattle. And um, uh, we were trying our hardest in, in the Department for Health to, to model good behaviour. And it was a shame that at Downing Street... Uh, they didn't apply the same principle. Mm. And you also, as a health minister, became passionate about tackling obesity. Do you feel now disappointed that Rishi Sunak has abandoned or shelved um, some of those proposals, for example, the um, ban on advertising to children of junk food um, uh, before the watershed? Yeah, I mean, I, it's not just Rishi Sunak. It's, it's a large part of the Conservative Party is heading in completely the wrong direction on health. And there are two main things. One, we, we're not learning the lessons of the pandemic. The, the infrastructure that was built and the practices that were built during the pandemic have been systematically disassembled, which is a, a huge mistake. It means that we're not resilient and prepared for the next pandemic when it comes. And by the way, it will definitely come. That's not because I want it to become. It's just a sad truth. We're living in a pandemic generation. Also, a lot of those technologies and infrastructure could be used for public health, for screening and for improving the health of the nation and taking them to pieces and denigrating the people involved um, is going to have a big price to pay. Mm. And, then, and then secondly, we are a really unhealthy nation. We're one of the most unhealthy nations in the developed world. That puts a huge price on the NHS because we have more people. I remember we used to have um, uh, a meeting every morning where... The, where we would go through the different ICU units and the heads of the ICU units used to say day after day, well, unfortunately, we've got about 30 people who are obese or got diabetes in the emergency ward, so we're going to definitely need to be closing this one down quite soon. I think that a large number of the lockdown days were caused by the fact that we we're carrying a million people with diabetes in this country mm. because of our obesity problem. If we hadn't have had that obesity problem, we would have had many fewer lockdown days, like half the number of lockdown days. And to turn our backs on that problem because it's felt to be politically um, difficult to handle by some parts of the parliamentary party is nuts. And, and uh, we need to address 
obesity and addiction and the basic healthiness of this country is a matter of urgency. Is that partly because of your mother and then your father had Parkinson's as well, didn't he? Is, is there a sense that you want to be as healthy as you possibly can? Yes. A bit. My grandfather died when he was 63. My father died when he was 68. My mother died when she was 36. And I just think about all those lost years those people had when they could have... You know, we have a wonderful opportunity to live really healthy, longer lives and to be productive during that period. And there's no confidence or belief in this country that that is possible for the, for the country. We, we, we're nihilistic. We've sort of given up hope that Britain will ever be healthy. We, we just refuse to acknowledge that, the, that we have a donut problem and a, and a, and a lager problem and a, and a, and a mouldy homes problem and a filthy hair problem and a, and a junk food problem and a porn problem. These, these are costing our country hugely from a societal point of view and from an economic point of view. So what about the argument that a lot of people hate the idea of the nanny state and feel that um, any kind of bans or, or curtailing of their uh, freedoms is a bad idea? I just think it's nonsense, total nonsense. The people I meet care greatly that their children are going to be healthy. They want their children to be running around the playground, to be doing sports, to be able to focus in, in the classes and to, to do productively. It's like saying that parents want their children to get D's and E's in, in English and French. That is not what parents want. Mm. They want the best for their children. They want their um, parents to be um, healthy and to, and, to, um, and to leave healthy lives. The idea that they're, that they're some kind of uh, existential jeopardy about cleaning up our supermarkets and teaching our children how to eat properly is completely bonkers. But also there seems to be a sense with you that actually because you didn't have your mother around that you you acknowledge and understand that, that children can't do it all on their own, can they? That you may not have a parent to tell you how to eat or that, that actually families are chaotic and difficult and you do need some help from the state. I go further than that. I, I just don't like the way we blame children for the problems that they've got. Children are delicate and, and things have consequences. So if a, if a child is in an environment where there is alcoholism, in, in my case, or in an environment where, where they are encouraged to eat too much or um, uh, other pressures, that can have a huge outcome for the rest of their life. And it's not their fault. We need to do something about the environment that they're brought up in not blame the children. And if we took you back to when you were nine and you discovered that your mother had died, what would you want to say to yourself then that you now know? Well, I think... I think I did... I think I did get there, which is you've got to turn this into a super strength. Don't turn it into a vulnerability. Don't make it... Don't be a victim. Don't... Don't say you're never going to be able to... Don't give yourself an excuse for not working hard or trying hard. Try and figure out why, why this ex experience is going to carve out something valuable and special for you. And, and that is kind of what my brother and I did try and do. We, we were exceptional. We were the only kids who didn't have a mum in our class and, and we'd had this sort of bizarre experience. And therefore, we, we did try to be slightly different from the other children who who had sort of softer, easier lives, and we would try to be a bit tougher and a bit more resilient than they were. James Bethel, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Rachel.
You've been listening to Past Imperfect, an association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools, with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the Conservative peer and campaigner, James Bethel. The producer was Lucy Ditchmont. If you've enjoyed this episode of Past Imperfect, please do go to the Times Radio app where you can download our interviews with guests including Kirsty Allsop, James Dyson, Keir Starmer and Rose Tremaine. You can also buy a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.